Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God that has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and support of the saints. And this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith, utterance, and in knowledge, in all earnestness and in love, we inspire you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the interest of others the sincerity of your love also. Last week I gave you two verses. One was out of Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 38. And the other one was out of the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 35. I asked, do you believe the Bible? And uh, it's obvious some of you do because you came back. (laughs) Um, Both of those are Christ's words. The Acts text says it is more blessed to give than it is to Receive. The Luke's text says, give, and to that measure it will be pressed down, shaken, overflowing in your laps, that God would return it. Do you believe that? You either have faith to say God's word is an amen and an amen, or you're in sin. Kind of limited in our options. We give to the church. We looked at this in depth last week. We give to the church, one, for the leadership, those who have spiritual um, guardians of our souls who give us and deal with us in the eternal things and those who assist them. But we also give to the saints who are in need. Those are our two things. That's why people gave at the birth of the church and technically that should be why people give Today, chapters eight and nine here, Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to give to generously and sacrificially to the poor saints in Jerusalem. There has been an issue with Paul and the church in Corinth. The relationship was strained. But we've already looked in chapter 7 that there had been a restoration and a repentance of the church in Corinth. And that relationship has come back. Paul had sent many letters to this church. We actually know of four. Um, We have two. But Paul gives us an illustration here. Uh, If you wanted to use the term, he gives us a model on how to give. How do we give? I have already given you why. One, for the spiritual reason that God will return, press down, and it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. But he goes into chapter 8 a little more in detail. Um, 
this church in Jerusalem, uh, it's kind of funny. I always look at the church in Jerusalem as the first mega church. Okay. And if you really think about it, there was no other churches anywhere on the planet Earth. So (laughs) it had to be a mega church. I I want to show you some things that I I think that we miss at times. In Acts chapter 2, when I think about this church in Jerusalem, um, it's a mega church. But I don't know in my study of history that you would ever see a poorer church than the church in Jerusalem. Um, And part of the reason, there are numerous reasons, this place was full of pilgrims at Pentecost. Chapter 2, verse 9, it says there was Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phygeria, Pamphylia, Egypt, districts of Libya, Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. Okay? They were from all over the world. You will see a term used in chapter 6 of of uh, the book of Acts, and it says these Hellenistic Jews. And what that means is, is that they were Jewish in their lineage, but they lived in the Gentile world. And they were all over the place. Acts chapter 4, verse 4, many of those who heard the message believed, and a number of men came to about 5,000. Okay, that's how many men were there. I wonder how, if any of the men were married. If any of them were married, I wonder if they had any kids. Because they'd all came with the fathers. And yet, if you think about it, you're a couple of months, uh, what, 40, 42 days, 43 days after the resurrection of Christ... And now you've gone from 120 disciples in the upper room to somewhere in excess between 10 and 15,000. And they're pilgrims. Are they going to go back? What church would they go back to? What teaching would they go back to? Who would be their teacher, their elders, their pastors? There was no other place in the world to go. There were no other Christians outside of Jerusalem. There were no other apostles outside of Jerusalem. They're not going to go home. They had been staying in inns for the great festival of Pentecost. Well, if you ever stayed in a hotel, it's not really the cheapest place to stay. Not only that, if you don't go back to your house, what are you going to do for a living? You've got 120 people at best. You've got 120 houses. And you're going to put 10,000 new guests with you. Can you imagine 120 people trying to absorb 10,000 people? Not only do I have pilgrims, I have widows. Anybody know what the average income of a widow And Jerusalem was at this age? Nothing. Whatever their family could 
give them if their family could. If they were poor, they stayed. The pilgrims would stay. Some may have been slaves. Here's the first mega church on the planet Earth, and it is dirt poor because of the pilgrims. Second thing that would cause this church to be poor is the persecution of the Jews. You've got to understand something about Jerusalem, even as today. Jerusalem is the single most holy place on the globe. All right? Not only that, if you take a Jewish person, there is a greater concern about their religion than anywhere else on the planet. To, to term a phrase that I spoke with a, uh, a rabbi in Jerusalem a number of years ago is that we are fanatic about Judaism. It's always been that way. But also in Jerusalem, you have what is called a very exclusive mindset. I was walking through Jerusalem, the old town of Jerusalem on Saturday. That's the Sabbath. Okay. And <laughs> nobody does anything on the Sabbath. There, there, you can go to the Arab quarter and there might be some things open. There is a little Gentile area. There might be some things open. But the Jewish quarter is boarded up, closed up, battened up. You ain't getting, if you were wanting a candy bar, forget it. But they're all out and about. But what's funny is, was for me, was, um, in case you can't notice by looking at me, um, I look very Gentile. Okay, and Jews don't want to touch a Gentile on the Sabbath. Okay, this is a very bad thing for them. And they're packed in like sardines. Unless you're a Gentile. Then it's like parting of the Red Sea. They all move away. And it's fascinating for me because some of you know my sense of humor. I want in the middle of this. Okay? So I would walk around with my arms. <laughs> come here, come here. <laughs> I didn't do that. Thought about it though. They have a very exclusive mindset and um, they are fanatical in their Judaism. Uh, if they see a cab go by a Jewish quarter, they throw stones at it. Okay? Because he's working. You're working on the Sabbath. They'll throw stones at it. And I, I just, you just sort of sit there and think, really? But anyway. They also have a great anger for anyone who rejects Judaism. And they've always had, even to this day. Uh, you don't see it so much here in America, but if you go to Jerusalem, you will see it. You move out of Jerusalem, you go to Tel Aviv, Haifa, some of the outlying areas, no big deal. You can even go up to Galilee, they don't care. They call it Tiberius. You go up there, they don't care. You know, they'll have, you'll have a handful of rabbis. But if you see them in Jerusalem, they're fanatical about it. But I want to share with you because... 
the Jews who were in that upper room at the birth of the church were warned that this was coming. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, this is called the Upper Room Discourse, starts in chapter 13 and goes through 17. And he's, this is at the Last Supper, and he's getting ready to tell them what's coming down the pike. Chapter 15, verse 20, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you keep my word, they will keep yours also. Chapter 16, verse 2. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. So in the church in Jerusalem, you have all the pilgrims who came to salvation who are staying. But you also now have the persecution of the Jews because uh, I had a dear friend of mine who was born and raised in Baltimore from a Jewish family, a devout Jewish family. He came to know Christ and the family had a funeral for him and actually had a tombstone put in the local cemetery in Baltimore for his death and never acknowledged his existence from that day forward. So to come to Christ as a Jew is going to cost you everything. You may have a job, now you don't have a job. You may have had a synagogue, now you don't have a synagogue. So you've got the pilgrims, then you've got the persecution, but you also have this, the Roman economy. Jerusalem was as poor as any part of the Roman Empire. Many would argue it was the poorest part of the entire empire. Uh, If you remember, Pilate complained about being sent to Jerusalem. Rome, the city, was extraordinarily wealthy. And the reason Rome, the city, was so wealthy is because the empire was poor. They would take the natural resources, they would take the products, and then what was left was heavily taxed. Then one other footnote you could think about on how poor the church in Jerusalem is, is a little fascinating one that I happen to stumble upon. It comes out of the letter of Acts, chapter 11, 27 and following. Now, at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. (laughs) It's sort of like insult to injury. The church was poor. Terribly, terribly poor. And yet, if you think about it, Judea, Jerusalem, had the largest population of believers anywhere. And you know what? God did much there. In spite of the famine, chapter 244, verse 44. Those who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 45 says, And they began selling their property and possessions and sharing them with all 
as anyone might have need. They did a lot of things together. Chapter 6, you see that they set aside men filled with the Spirit to feed the widows because they had Jewish widows and Hellenistic Jewish widows. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul reminds the Galatians to give to the needy in Jerusalem. Remember the poor. Paul had a burden for these people. See it in 2 Corinthians 6.10 on the offering for Jerusalem. In Ephesians... And see, now you've got to understand what Paul's, part of Paul's thinking is on this. You've got a huge mega church, the largest single concentration of believers on the planet Earth. And they're hurting. They're hurting. Because see, you can only sell your house so many times and give it to the poor. And eventually you're going to run out of possessions. And yet they were willing to do that. But that group was only going to get bigger. He also remembered what he wrote to the church in Ephesians in chapter 2. That there was a wall that had separated the Jew and the Gentile. And there was a hostility between them. And now he was an apostle to the... Gentiles, and he was collecting monies from the Gentile believers so he could give them to the Jewish believers. We do that here. We have doors open to Israel through Russian Jews. We've already given to Russia. Some of these guys are Jewish, and I don't walk into Russia when I'm teaching and preaching there and say, Hey, are you Jewish? Because in my mindset, mine is like Paul's. You're either Jew, Gentile, or a believer. So that's how I teach. You're either a saint or an ain't. I ain't worried about it. Paul was wanting the Jewish believers to see. Remember, he went into Jerusalem for the Jerusalem council. And Barnabas had to testify on behalf of Paul that... Gentiles are getting saved. And the Jews were like, what? Yep. There is a oneness in Christ. And there was a relationship problem between the Jew and the Gentile. Now, if you go back to the Second Corinthians text, I'll show you a couple of different things. And then I'm going to jump into verse 1. If you look at this text, chapter 8, verse 6. So we urged Titus that he had previously made a beginning so he would complete and your gracious work there. Okay, drop to verse 10. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also a desire to do it. So Paul reminded them that a year earlier, he had said, take up a special offering for the churches in Jerusalem. If you look at verse 11, but now finish doing it. So that just as there was a readiness to desire it, so there may be also be a completion of it by your ability. This was a passion for the Apostle Paul. 
Now, remember, he had a relationship problem with them. He had wrote them the severe letter. Titus had taken that letter back to him and they had repented on it. Titus brought the information back. He says, now let's get back to what we were doing. Taking up an offering. You see him speak of this in Romans chapter 15, verse 25. You see in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, that he had put a committee together to take this massive amount of money back to Jerusalem. In chapter 24, verse 17 of Acts, Paul says, I'm going to be there giving this. Because Paul wanted the Jews to see that the Gentiles were one in Christ also. It was specific to this text. The specific issue is the church in Jerusalem. But it also should be a motivation for you and I. Let me show you how chapter 8 lays out this motivation. Verse 9 is because this giving like this, sacrificially like the Macedonians, generously, is Christ-like. Verses 10 through 12, it is a desire of the heart of the redeemed people. Verses 13 through 15, it shows the compassion of the person who is in the grace of God. 16 through 21, it is honorable before God and honorable before man. 22 to 24, it is proof of their love. And guess what? We're going to learn every one of these. But verse 1 through 8 is a biblical view of giving, but it is the behavior of those who are devoted to Christ. Let me show you. Verse 1. Thou, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God has been given in the churches of Macedonia. The churches of Macedonia are an example and it sets our understanding on how we ought to give. Okay, you see the word word now? That is a Greek particle. It means I'm starting a new topic. It comes from the restoration of the relationship that we've seen in chapter 7. And because of that restored relationship, now, let me get on to something else. Basically, what you want, need to know is Macedonia had three churches. Church in Berea. Church in Thessalonica and church in Philippi. Three churches. But you know what's fascinating? And I, I was just going back through this a lot. Um, I, I think, and some of you already know this, my favorite church in all of the world is the church in Thessalonica. Them people rock my universe. I can get bummed out about anything, I can read the first three, le- three chapters of 1 Thessalonians and say, right on. <laughs> but in the letter to the Philippians and the two letters to the church in Thessalonica, do you realize that Paul never mentions anything about dealing with rich people? He doesn't deal with rich people's behavior. He doesn't have any warnings for rich people. And the reason is they were very poor. And if you're very poor, you don't have to tell, you don't have to warn them about the traps of being rich. Listen, one of the things I've learned, and and you guys all, well, those of you who know me know that I have this character flaw. I love history. I mean, history is just awesome to me. And one of the things I learned that under the Roman Empire, 
The Romans were extraordinarily good at making an area poor. They were very good at it. They had been in Macedonia, that's the top half of the Greek peninsula, since 148 B.C. You, you, you will hear historians speak of the peace of Rome. Yeah, there was peace that Rome brought, and it's called the terror of the sword. If you're willing to line a whole village up with crosses and crucify anybody against you, you'll get their undivided attention. In Macedonia, there was two main industries. Okay? There was multiple industries, but the two emphasis was mining and smelting. Okay, you know what smelting is? Melting it down into ingots or whatever it was necessary. And they had some very large veins of silver and gold. When Rome conquered Macedonia, guess what? They took over the mining operations. Funny how that works. But the Romans in their compassion and love allowed the Macedonians to work, to dig into mines and to smelt the ore. But they took all the profits from the gold and the silver and copper and bronze. And then they were so compassionate that any smelters that were there, they taxed. So the Romans would take all the profit of the gold and the silver and they taxed the process that the product brought. And their main product in Macedonia was poverty. They had salt, they had timber, but they used the salt for the army. You ever heard a man's worth his weight in salt? That's how Roman soldiers used to be paid. Because you had salt, you had food to preserve. Or you had the capability of preserving food. Okay, And then shipbuilding for their navies. Oh, by the way, those were taxed. All of these industries were taken over by the Roman government in Macedonia. And it ended up making Macedonia extraordinarily poor. But God took that poverty and makes it the perfect example of giving. You note that? Because it's not a mega church that's giving here. You got three churches, persecuted churches, poor churches. You're not dealing with people who have a lot. Look at verse 2. Their deep poverty. Yet their giving overflowed. And in verse 3, it says they gave beyond their ability and they did it of their own accord. So it's a perfect illustration. That the generosity, even though poor, of a true Christian giving. Paul wants the Corinthians to give like the Macedonians. Because Corinth wasn't poor. It was what is called a free colony. Slaves that were freed from Roman service got land and businesses that they could start in Corinth. Now, he wants us to be wise. We've looked at this over the months. He wants us to be wise. He wants us to plan. 
He wants us to save as possible. He wants us to be good stewards of what God has provided. You know, put away some for the future. Okay, but I want to show you something here. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which was been given to the churches of Macedonia. Listen. Giving is God's grace. Do you get that? I listen to people who want to sing amazing grace. I've had people say, I need more grace. And, and, I, and I listen to these things over and over how we treat God's grace. And yet I read this one here. And it says, I want to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. What does the grace of God in the churches of Macedonia look like? They were begging Paul to give more for the help of the saints. You ever thought about that? I can honestly say I've never had anybody come to me and say, Terry, I beg you, let me give more. I think if that ever happened, I would fall over dead. (laughs) What? I've stepped into a parallel universe. When the motivation comes from this grace then you realize that it's not them who want to give. That's where the motivation comes from. You know what? I've already gone through why we don't want to hear about giving. We don't like to. We don't like to give. I asked you a question last Sunday. When you come to church, what's the thing you look most forward to when you come to church? For the Macedonians, it was the opportunity to give. Why? Because God's grace had motivated. The primary motive of giving wasn't human kindness. You see that today. They'll show you a little picture of a starving child. $10 a month. Or they'll show you, look, we can build a foundation. Or we give you this, or we give you that, or we give you that. What about God's grace? What about the fact that God's grace gave you what you have? Gave you the ability to earn what you have, the talents to do it, and the resources to gather that wealth. Isn't that good enough reason? The grace of God at work in their hearts produces generosity. It's not human. If it's not human, it's not normal. It is a divine action in the heart of the redeemed. Man can, now listen, man can do good, but human good can't reach the transformation that happens by the grace of God. Listen, I want you to get a hold of this. All right? Have you watched a telephone? $10 here, $4 here? $100 here. How much of that is sacrificial? Do you remember right after Sandy? Right? We had 
a concert. Remember that? And I mean, the, the big names was out there. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. If they gave 50% of their net worth, they'd have got more money. I see it all the time. We did it for Katrina. We did it for the hurricane or the hurricanes, the tornadoes in Oklahoma. We're going to have a concert. Why don't you guys just give part of your salaries? Just a year of your salary. Instead of making me buy a ticket to listen to you so you can give it away. Why don't you give it? Well, we're not charging anything. No, well, no, wait. That one guy's got a motorhome that costs more than my house. Sell the bus. See, that's human. See, one of the things that I've noticed about human giving, even in tragedy, it always, always, always stops far short of sacrifice. See, there's times maybe with a family member, I might give sacrificially, make it a little uncomfortable for me. But that's the love of family. Human giving stops short of altering one's chosen lifestyle. That's human giving. It's all over the place. It thrives in the church. This, what the Macedonians are doing, is way beyond that because it is motivated by the grace of God. They know the unmerited favor God has given them. Why can they not give? It's the heart of a transformed person. It's the heart that longs for the things of God. It's, it's, it's the heart that loves heaven more than earth. That giving. It's that saving, sanctifying, grace transformation that you've seen of Zacchaeus. Salvation has come to your house. Why? I'll give you half of everything I got. And anybody I cheated, I'll give them four times back. Why? I understand what the grace is. We all talk about, well, I am saved by grace through faith. And we all talk about it. Do you realize what you just said? You have been saved by God's grace. What do you have that is more precious than that on this planet? And then why can't you give? Sacrificially, generously, as the Macedonians. This is that thing that you see in those who seek first his kingdom. These are the ones that you see who have set their affection on the things above. These are the ones that cause you to hunger and thirst after righteousness. These are the ones who long for the word of God. These are the ones who are obedient and following of the Holy Spirit. These are the effects of God's grace. It is a longing to give generously. It is a longing to give sacrificially. And it is not based on your income. It is the work of salvation. It is God's salvation in you that changes your heart that says, whatever I have, God has given and I will be a steward of whatever God wants me to do with it. I will give it away freely and I will not even lose any sleep over it. 
We don't give like the unsaved rich. The Macedonians didn't. They gave out of their poverty. They didn't give out of their riches. They gave with sacrifice. They didn't give like selfish Christians. And I heard a quote on describing selfish Christians. I had to write it down. You'll get a kick out of it. I quote, Whose love for the eternal is matched by their love for the temporal. Unquote. Selfish Christians. You know those. Everything's a battle. Everything's a battle. But there are some who give in total devotion to Christ. They are generous. They are sacrificial. And it is in response of the work of grace of God in their hearts. Generous giving is an effect of saving, sanctifying grace. Okay? Listen, when you see sacrificial, generous giving, you can emphatically know God's grace is at work in that person's heart. I remember, I knew a guy <laughs> and reached into his pocket that's taking an offering for a pastor. And he reached into his pocket. He had a $100 bill and a $10 bill. So he's going to give him that $10 bill. He threw it in the plate. And then he left to go eat lunch after church. And he looked down and he had the 10 And I, my thought was, so he go back and ask for the 100 <laughs> There should be a 100 in there. I'll give you this 10 instead. <laughs> God bought lunch. Grace of God operating through the love of the truth, obedience to the Spirit, and that gratitude of His grace prompts giving. Paul says that the Macedonian church is the model of this. I think it's fascinating to me. Absolutely mind-boggling. When I read this, it's set up so... It isn't the people in the churches in Macedonia. It is the grace of God that did it. I've had people come to me and say, this is what I'll give. Listen, that's what you're doing. It is not the grace of God causing you. Because the people that I have watched the grace of God do it, you never know they did. They just do it. They just do it. And you know what? It's even amazing because, I, I'll be honest with you, this church is a blessing um, because it gives. Okay? But if you know me, you know that my passion is the church of Thessalonica. And if you read this, you can do your homework assignment. Go look at the first three chapters. Okay? The first three chapters are awesome. I mean, you read that. I mean, what had happened to those people in Thessalonica had been known throughout the Greek peninsula and all of Christendom. And you know what's amazing is? I don't know who their pastor was. I don't know if he was published or if he had a radio show. But what they were doing for the work of the kingdom was being heard throughout Christianity. But in chapter 4, 
three times he uses something. This is an amazing church, people. Three times after that, he says, I want you to excel more. Castle Rock Baptist Church. I want you to excel more. More. Why? My Bible says that he will do exceedingly abundantly beyond what you can think or imagine. And whatever we do for the kingdom now, guess what? We can take with us. Have a stack of crowns to throw back at the foot of Christ. And said, we tried to excel more. Listen, we are drawn to the Macedonian character. I shared with you, uh, my favorite place is Thessalonica. We are drawn to that. But let me tell you something. You're not bound to them by any human merit. It's like I said, who was the pastor of the church of Thessalonica? Who was the pastor of Philippi? The Bereans. We don't know nothing about them other than that they were classified as noble. Why were they classified as noble? They sought the scriptures to see if this was true. But I don't know any of the individuals. But I do know the grace of God was upon all three churches. How do I know that? Because they begged Paul to give more. That's the grace of God. It's not the individuals. What they did was purely and solely and wholly because of God's grace. Do you need a motive to give? Then look at the grace of God. And you need to seek no farther than that. Do you understand what he gave you? Joint inheritance with Christ? Huh. A down payment? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your soul? Really? Do you need a bigger motive? Or are you like the selfish Christian? I have as much love for the eternal things as I do for the temporal things. And the two shall never cross. Paul wants the Corinthians to respond the same way as the Macedonians. Give sacrificially, give generously. And you know what? We should. Listen, I've traveled different parts of the world and I've seen poverty. This country has no idea what poverty is. Okay, because I've seen poverty. I remember walking down the street in uh, Russia, fairly good sized city, and I was watching the widows were cutting the branches off. Of, you know how they have the shrubbery growing in the summer. They were cutting the branches off so they could have fires in their apartments. That's poor. A pastor that I is a very dear friend of mine in Oriel. His mother-in-law lives with him. Two uh, uh, mid-twenty sons and a daughter and his wife. Okay? Three rooms. Well, that's not so bad. No, no, wait. One's a bathroom and one's a kitchen. I know what poverty is. I've seen poverty. 
had a lady that I preached on the book of Revelations. And she came up weeping afterwards. She says, I have no money to give you. She walks up and hand me a bag of eggs that she had collected from her chicken coop out back of the church. She says, here, this is all I have. I said, I don't want your eggs. And then I thought about it. And it's more blessed to give than receive. The lady was wanting blessings to give me a bag of eggs. See what I mean? I know what poverty is. There ain't nobody in this room poor. Ain't nobody in this room poor. And there ain't nobody in this country poor. We should give as the Macedonians. We should not give like the world. The world will not change their lifestyle. I sold a fishing boat to help a seminary. And I liked my fishing boat. It wasn't like it would sink or something. It was a very effective fishing boat. I actually caught fish in it. Out of it. That's what I mean. In it. <laughs> what was you doing fishing in your boat? I knew where they were. Um, <laughs> I sold that to help a seminary in Russia. I mean, it really wasn't that big a deal. But... Are we willing to get rid of our possessions because these are what God wants done? Are we willing to change our lifestyle because this is what God wants done? Because see, the lost can give. Lost people give. They will never do it sacrificially. And they will never do it to alter their lifestyle. Saints of God should. We should give way and beyond anything else anybody else does. We have received and we live in God's transforming grace. That is the only motive that we need. So giving is God's grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the Macedonians. Father, I thank you for the Thessalonians. I thank you for the Bereans. I thank you for the precious saints in Philippi. Father, I pray that we here will look at that and say, Amen and Amen. And that, Father, we would give as the Macedonians. And that, Father, as this church is a very giving church, I've seen it over the years, decades. Father, I pray that we'll excel still more. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit in us. Thank you for your precious bride, your church. Father, thank you for your grace that abounds in our lives. To your glory and praise. Amen.